These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. With me today is Sunny Schwartz. Sunny has been a criminal justice champion for almost four decades. She's been the founder of several groundbreaking programs in jails and prisons that have changed thousands of lives. Implementing schools and restorative justice programs in jails, helping to house formerly criminalized domestic violence survivors from prisons. This reflects her passion to get to the underlying reasons for mass incarceration, poverty, trauma, and racism. Sunny is an author of the book, Dreams from the Monster Factory, a tale of prison and one woman's fight to restore justice for all. And today she's currently a consultant for a new program, Home Free. I met Sunny when I worked for the health department in San Francisco, and we immediately became soul sisters. So, Sunny, it's a great honor to have you as a guest on Healthcare Untold. Welcome, Sunny, to Healthcare Untold. Barb, it is my absolute honor, and I couldn't agree more. Soul sisters unite. <laughs> right on. And so, Sunny, <laughs> won't you, you know, Healthcare Untold is really a podcast to honor you. You know, we always work together um, talking about the intersection between criminal justice and health. Um, you know, I talked about trauma and uh, poverty um, and racism as being, you know, the, the, the real factors, the underlying factors of why we have so many people of color and women of color, men of color in our prison and jail systems. So why don't you share with us how you got into this work um, and then, you know, tell us about what you're doing today. Absolutely. And spot on as uh, you encapsulated that regarding criminal justice. So, you know, I have had the good fortune as well as the deep heartache to work in criminal justice, as you mentioned. I'm going on my 40th year as a law student, as a lawyer, and for several decades uh, as a program administrator for then Sheriff Michael Hennessy in the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. And so uh, as a result, I mean, there's no coincidence perhaps why we do the things we do, born and raised mostly on the south side of Chicago. And I saw early on that the inequities of um, not only our criminal justice system, our juvenile justice system at the time, and school districts and how different they were, the South Side schools compared to the North suburb schools. So early on, I think it was in my social DNA to um, to be an advocate um, for those who um, had been forgotten, painfully forgotten. And, and, you know, I want to say right up front, I don't pretend to walk in the shoes of the men and women behind the walls of the jails and prisons in our country. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense of empathy and outrage that I've always felt for a variety of reasons. You know, um, I've had my own struggles, even though I don't walk in the shoes. I've had probably a learning difference, which was never diagnosed uh, when I, on the south side of Chicago and the Chicago public schools on in the 60s and 70s, you tested low, you were in the, quote, dummy class, end quote. And naturally, that brought a lot of shame and 
and anger. So, you know, again, there's no coincidence why we do the things we do. I think as an early, just as a child and young adult, I, the inequities of the haves and the have-nots and why based on race, and based on class, and certainly gender as well, was screaming even as a, a small, a young child and young adult. So, as I said, I've seen the the... The, I've had the good fortune uh, as well, what I mean by heartache, because uh, you see people in jails. And when I walked down Mainline in 1980 as a law student, I was horrified. I was yeah. horrified because, you know, I there were men and women, there were adults who were in a cage. And, uh, you know, you go to the SPCA today and sometimes the animals are treated better. Nothing wrong with treating animals well, but... Um, so I chose to work in that setting, and, and you know, the biggest occupational hazard is uh, people would ask me, wow, as a woman, didn't you feel afraid? Wasn't it hazardous? And actually, I think the biggest occupational hazard is cynicism, you know. Right. Um, for whatever reason, um, I stuck with it because I saw the potential of the human spirit right in front of me. And I and thankfully worked for a... Um, a forward-thinking sheriff named Michael Hennessy for 32 of those years. And he was a civil libertarian himself and um, um, an advocate for prisoners prior to his successful uh, election becoming sheriff in 1980. So we had a lot of, it was a moment in time where we really were committed to changing the fabric and the culture of incarceration from the monster factory, as we would call it, to a place, uh, engines of, of change and accountability and accountability of the government and the accountability of those who have, who were in our custody, who harm people. And, and I think it's important to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, for those years, we had an opportunity and there were pockets of civility in the belly of that beast called incarceration. Now, I'm, I have to be honest also, I'm not an abolitionist. I'm an abolitionist of how we run our jails and prisons. I think there's a distinct minority of people who should not be on our streets. I want to I mm-hmm. be straight up about that. Um, but the vast majority of the men and women that, that I have seen over decades there's no coincidence why they are in jail based on the horrid race, racism, the horrid classism and sexism. And, you know, when I took over the program unit in the sheriff's department, I intuitively knew, felt what was missing, what the services the men and women were deserving and needing. And but I wanted to do it right. So we hired a learning specialist. We tested 350 men and women. And sure enough, the average reading level for adults were between fourth and sixth grade. Wow. The overwhelming majority of the men and women between fourth and sixth grade. Well, you know, you need at least a fifth grade education to apply for a job to even understand the application at the very least. We also interviewed those 350 men and women. and. It's painful, but the demographics, the, 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 the reality check was very affirming as well as heartbreaking. 80%, this is not a scientific test, but it was a self-disclosure. 80% disclosed that there were addicts or alcoholics or both. 90% 
disclosed that they were, uh, 90% of the women disclosed that they were victims of child sexual or and or adult trauma violence. Mm-hmm. The men also uh, disclosed that was 70% who were victims of child sexual abuse. 90% disclosed that they never held a legal job for a year. And so that begged the question and it begged the service. If we really were going to get into why are people coming back? I mean, it was our moral as well as professional and government obligation to try to make it right or a little better than when they came in. That's for sure. So we started as a result to create programs that were responsive to the men and women's struggles and deficiencies. And so we created these heartfelt and, you know, look, I think also the jury's still out. Uh, You know, I, I take issue with anyone saying this is the answer. We have, we have promising results, but we're dealing with, Barb, when I left uh, after three plus decades, I saw the grandchildren of the men and women I advocated for as a law student in the 80s. In and jail. Three generations. In jail. In jail. Three generations of incarcerated people. There was one day, a, a grand, a, literally a grandfather father and a son in one dormitory that we found out. And that's the heartbreak. Yeah. That's the heartbreak. Right. The the heartening and triumph of the spirit is is what keeps a lot of us going because we believe in people's ability to change. That's we right. believe that there is a hunger for service there's a hunger to do the right thing. You know, people are not born being violent or antisocial. It's, we're all creatures of our environment. This is not to excuse hurtful behavior, but there's no coincidence of why we have people, particularly people of color, who really have not had a remote opportunity like mainstream upper class mostly white people have. And, you know, we're creatures of our environment. I'm a creature of my environment. I'd venture to say we're mostly uh, creatures of our environment. Right, and when you... Right. And when you talk about the fact that, you know, many of these individuals, the school system failed them, um, and the fact that, you know, they only went to fourth grade or had... They might have been pushed out, you know, in terms of um, only receiving a fourth grade, fifth grade education. You can imagine that mm-hmm. cycle, which you, um, you know, which kind of puts them there in terms of um, not being able to do a job application, not being able to get a job. And where is the That's best right. way you can uh, make some money is, uh, you know, maybe selling a little bit on the side and, and that kind of creates and then becoming an addict and that cycle of, of, uh, you know, what we saw in the jails and, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. were uh, serving them within. I was, we were trying to create programs within and, you know, helping people That's transition right. out. Um, and so I can remember you telling me about Michael Hennessy, our sheriff um, here in, in the Bay Area, uh, saying that, hey, no one's going to be laying in a, in a uh, cot. They're going to need to uh get up and get some education. And and I think that's kind of where your start of your uh, programming happened. Is that, is that right? We did. We did. A, a rewind a little bit. It, it When I became, uh, became the program director, administrator of it, 
we had a, you know come sign up for this program for we had the sister project for substance abuse and the first quasi therapeutic community for substance abusing women, a gender specific trauma informed program where we try. Well, I say quasi quasi therapeutic because it still is a jail mm-hmm. and there it was wasn't the the most ideal setting. But we did this cross training with deputy sheriffs who were on board who understood the language of the TC the therapeutic community. We had um, we had counselors learning about safety and security. It was really changed. We were together, even though we weren't clones of one another. We had different opinions, but we all had the fundamental belief that this was important. This was important to break that cycle of of substance abuse and self um, destruction, as well as hurting other people and families and other people in your community. So that was the first really comprehensive program. Then we had it for men called Roads to Recovery. And then we took, no one was dealing with violence, Barb. Right. It was a scary thing to take on, to to work with violent offenders, male violent offenders, because you just don't have that, you don't put 62, our dormitories each held at that time, 62 um, people. And um, when we just first learned about this concept called restorative justice, and I'll never forget it. I was a, in a conference in Minnesota. This is circa 1992, 93. And I never heard of this thing called restorative justice. And But someone showed me a pamphlet of it, of a workshop she went to. And restorative justice, the pamphlet said, and it's still imprinted in my mind, if I can just share with you, restorative justice recognizes that crime hurts everyone victim, offender, community, and it creates an obligation to make things right. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental principle was accountability for those who harmed, the voice of those who have been harmed, the survivor victim, and community involvement to heal the harm caused by that violence or crime. And when I saw that, Barb, the light bulb went off because I said earlier on, the biggest occupational hazard is cynicism. I was not a cynical person, but when you do, when I saw the same people coming back over and over, knowing full well why, that there were understandable, cogent reasons why he or she kept coming back, sometimes five, six times within a year, I started to get not borderline cynical, but also what the heck are we doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, we really want to work hard in breaking that cycle. But what the heck is going on? No one was looking at the victim at that time. I wasn't. Right. I was just looking at those who harmed, the, those who offended. But there were missing links, and it was it was gnawing at me as well. Well, I you know the the cynical part of me that while I heard for a long time was she made me do it. I only pushed her. It was it was just a car. It wasn't a person that I broke. You know, I didn't break someone's someone's arm. I broke their window. You know, a lot of minimizing. And when I saw this pamphlet about restorative justice, personally and professionally, I thought, oh my god, that is the key, uh, one of many keys mm-hmm. of opening up people's hearts and spirits and and moving behavior, because it was so inclusive. So we started Resolve the Stop the Violence Project and when we launched it in 1997, actually. So, But we worked for two, two 
almost two years with all the stakeholders of people who were victims of crime, of horrific crime, those who offended, a multi-faith um, participation, Orthodox rabbi, Baptist ministers. We had Buddhists. We had what was the name of it again? Women. Sunny. What was the name of the uh, sin by silence? Mm-hmm. The sin legislation silence. commonly known as sin by silence mm-hmm. legislation. It's, I think it's AB fourteen ninety three, but it's commonly known as sin sin s i n by silence. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, um, women. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, early 90s, they were not who were severely battered, who ended up defending themselves that resulted in killing their abusive spouse or boyfriend. And back in the day, they were not allowed to bring in evidence of their abuse, which is just horrifying. What they went through was unspeakable violence. Well, there was only half the story. It was only half the story. Oh my God! I mean, you couldn't a fundamental right of defending of of mitigating any. You know, as a lawyer, one of the things that there's a homicide. You, the lawyer's job is to look deep into that and to see if there's any mitigating factors. You think about a home invasion, for instance. We have a right to protect our home and our person, right? Yes. But with women, you want to talk about. Social justice must include gender justice. And, you know, sexism and the criminal justice system is a a mirror image of the inequities, as we talked about, of our society, certainly with race, certainly with class, and certainly with gender. Um, and I've worked for 39 years plus and in the reform, criminal justice reform, and and deeply believe that people entangled um uh, there's no coincidence, as we talked about, but I, you know, in the last two years, I learned about this subpopulation of imprisoned women, survivors of the, of the unspeakable violence who serve, have served decades in prison. Decades. There's two groups. They, they either killed their batterer or they had a relative that heard about the horror that their relative and they killed and she got life without parole or life. Mm -hmm. There's another of those who were at the scene of a crime under the coercion of abusive partner, for instance. You know, there's a woman whose pimp, who was was trafficked at 14, and her pimp boyfriend killed one of her johns while she was in the car. Well, she got life without parole, life in prison without parole. So recent legislation, including Fiona's legislation, reducing the severe sentences, albeit decades later, they should have never been imposed in the, fir- in the first place, are starting to get out as, right. as a result of, of some of the reform. And painfully, most of them are released into drug treatment. Oh, yeah, I, read, now, drug, uh, thank I, God for, I always were looking at that in terms of your, um, your pamphlet, that that's the only program of transitional housing, so to speak, it's, for the women. It's virtually the only, yes. And, and you know, thank God for drug, drug treatment. Don't right. get me wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not for <laughs> that, you know, especially if they're not drug addicts. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about one size does not fit all. This is a lot of the women that uh, were abused and and Rosie, for instance, I'll call, you know, that's her first name. I'll leave it at that. We she worked for decades 
her violence, oh my God, it's, it's, it's hard to even repeat what happened to her, but just trust me, the most, one of the most severe, uh, continuum violence and she killed her abusive, uh, spouse and she wasn't allowed to bring in evidence of abuse. She tried for decades and we tried for the last couple of years and she just got released two weeks ago. Wow. Rosie was not, never an addict. She had no criminal background. Uh, she had no rap sheet, never arrested. 68 years old, cancer survivor, COPD, in a wheelchair. And um, she finally was let out and we got her a, because um, home free, which I'll explain about, is not, you know, because of COVID, everything came to a screeching halt. We have um, a multiplex on Treasure Island that we're going to, we're upgrading from the kindness of uh, professionals because they heard about what we're doing. And we have a, just a positive, beautiful, skilled people. We want to upgrade the units, but it came to a screeching halt. So we had to scramble and find Rosie um, a, a decent place, which we did for women only. And uh, the services, along with we have case management. And uh, she, uh, so imagine getting out now into a pandemic. But I got to tell you, Rosemary, Rosemary, Rosie is incredibly happy. I, I'm, I keep waiting for, um, you know, there's got to be meltdowns. You know, we mm -hmm. all have meltdowns. So mm -hmm. Imagine being in prison 34 years so far. You know, she calls me up and we talk almost every day and, and she's just so happy to be free, even though we're in the midst of a pandemic. Right. She was holding a cantaloupe and an avocado and she said, Sonny, do you have any idea? how happy this makes me, an avocado and a cantaloupe. I can't remember the last time I had that. Wow, that's really incredible, Sunny. And, you know, yeah. um, this program that you pretty much have started, I assume that you're yeah. you know, from this legislation in, in terms of here's uh, women that are going to be free, but where do they go, right? Um, and yeah. because they still need support to transition back into the community. Um, how do people help you with that program? It's five keys home free. Yeah. Five keys home free.org. Okay. And, um, it's, it's, it's writing a horrible wrong. I mean, I have to tell you, I talk to people all the time about this program because I'm pretty obsessed about, you know, making up for lost time, <laughs> you know, not, um, giving more passion and, and service to women. You know, there's, Men make up ninety plus percent right. of the jail population. There's the tyranny mm -hmm. of there's a tyranny of numbers though. As a mm -hmm. as a result, women are easily forgotten because mm -hmm. numbers and other inherent or implicit you know sexism. So yeah, home free, uh, five keys home free dot org, and you know naturally it's really tough. We we need uh, we're fundraising. Uh, we're looking for. Um, you know, furnishing where uh, people are adopting. We have one, six units, one family adopted one unit to furnish. Anybody has any leads on, on furniture. And we, and we want them to roll up to this place, walk up to this place and feel like, my God, I'm worth something. They've never felt worth and at we, all. So and, we're really not. And yeah. With, and without this beautiful. Right. And without this legislation, they would probably die in, prison if they have a they, life 
Yeah. Unfortunately, a couple of the, they call themselves the golden girls. And um, these are women in there. I, I looked at a list. There's a woman in there who's 85 years old. Barb. Wow. 85 years old. The average age of the this particular, there's more than 100 women that fit that category. And there's frankly thousands who are in prison in our women's prison who are there as a result of their being abused, whether they were a co-defendant under the coercion of their abusive boyfriend or spouse, or they were with somebody else. Now, accountability is important. And these women are the first to inside. I'm, I'm hearing the story. and I'm like, they're saying, no, sorry, but I took a life or I didn't stop someone from taking a life. Their accountability is stunning. I, I saw and the videos that uh, you had sent me, and uh, I really encouraged the audience to, you know, look at uh, fivekeyshomefree.org. It's a powerful, yeah. powerful videos um, yeah. on that. And, you know, Sunny, um, this is uh, the next chapter for you, I recognize. <laughs> but you have a big book of incredible work in restorative justice um, and uh, I can't be prouder to have you on this uh, program. And uh, you're clearly one of the heroes of restorative justice and the thousands of people, um, you know, because uh, the schools, I mean, it was the first schools within the jails um, in California. Yeah. And you just think of the kind of work from being a founder to that work. And, you know, we can't uh, thank you enough, Sonny, for uh, your commitment of your um, major life, you know, when you think about uh, how many years you've committed yourself from a lawyer to for 39 years to the incarcerated, um, you know, we can't thank you enough for the work. I just wanted to give you some final well, thoughts and um, to let the audience, you know, give it, give us some final thoughts, Sonny. Well, Barbara, I, I, I have to say right back to you and then some because um, your leadership um, you know, when you work for the city, again, you see the best of humanity and, and the struggle of humanity. And and I'm not just saying this because it's your show, that your podcast, um, by any means. You, um, your leadership, oh my God, you talk about hope. When I met you, I thought, wow, we're really going to be able to move mountains. And, uh, you, and hope is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, Shawshank Redemption is one of my... Um, favorite movies and <laughs> and I'll paraphrase so forgive me is one mm-hmm. of the best lines in Shawshank Redemption is hope he's saying this to Red a character and hope is a good thing maybe the best of things and no good thing ever dies right so I wish you and I will be hoping that you continue your wonderful leadership and advocacy and and sending a shout out to those who are listening to to remember that hope and activism is going to save our world and our communities. You know, absolutely. And you talk, you know, we're in the COVID era right now and, um, and it is changing the world. Uh, I know you'll work through this era of this time period because people need you and you'll continue to do your wonderful work, Sonny. And thank you for your um, wonderful uh, comments today. Um, and we really want to thank you on behalf of Healthcare Untold for being one of the heroes in restorative justice and supporting those that are incarcerated. So thank you so much, Sonny, for being uh, a guest with me today. Heartfelt thanks to you, Barb. Okay. I want to thank Sonny Schwartz uh, and also encourage the audience to donate 
uh, and look up uh, fivekeyshomefree.org, fivekeyshomefree.org. Healthcare untold. Healthcare untold. Healthcare untold.